In the days to come, in the days to come, Christmas trees will begin to sparkle in the front windows of homes if they aren't already. In the days to come, the crisp air will be brimming with Christmas magic and kindness. In the days to come, families will gather for long-standing traditions, carols and presents and dinners. And in the days to come, we, the church, anticipate the coming of Christmas morning, which is the peak of all things hope, peace, joy, and love. We anticipate these and so many more good things in the days to come. But let us not forget that which is happening now, both here and around the world. In the days to come, households in Eastern Europe will continue to huddle in single rooms, hoping that their body heat will deter frostbite. In the days to come, the women of Iran will continue rioting and pleading for equal rights. In the days to come, protesters will continue to splatter soup on famous pieces of art, calling for creation care. In the days to come, loved ones will continue to grieve the innocent lost in mass shootings. In the days to come, social media will continue to anticipate flippantly the arrival of World War III. In the days to come, nations will continue to constantly be at war. These, unfortunately, are the days to come. We hear these things and our hearts hurt. Each day, news channels provide glimpses of tragedies happening in every country, in every state, and in every town. And every day, we can find ourselves muttering the words of the psalmist, How long, O oh God, how long? And yet, our view of this moment, our view of the days to come, is so very different than Isaiah's in this passage. Isaiah's vision for Judea and Jerusalem screams of vibrant hope. It yearns for shalom, peace on earth. It anticipates shalom both for the season of Advent and the future beyond, when all the not-yets become the already's in Christ. Now, I'm ever the optimist. I like to see the glass half full, right? But the realist in me, peeking out, struggles to grasp Isaiah's words. I struggle to see the sorrows permeating the world and still somehow find hope lingering in the midst. And yet, Isaiah does that with this passage. You see, the people of Judea are greedy. They're consumed with sinfulness. They've turned away from God, finding comfort in selfishness, only brought about by bringing injustices to others. Isaiah's vision comes as a means of warning perhaps creatively addressing the people's obliviousness that their suffering, their actions are causing suffering for others. Now, I think you and I, we can understand the people not getting it. We can understand their failure, right? Their failure of recognizing that their actions are actually hurting people. I think of many hands. Our fair trade store just across the street we as a church at Second Baptist know the value of buying ethically made goods, but my guess is that before 
Second, uh, many hands became a thing. Before even the vision for many hands became a thing, that we rarely probably thought about the justice system and our buying of what is cheapest and fastest and even just the most accessible. Yet Isaiah seems to do that with this passage. Isaiah offers Judea and Jerusalem an image of possibility. In the days to come, the mountain of God's house will be the highest mountain. What comes first when re-envisioning a society and a culture? A common center. Finding the thing that binds humanity together. The essence of existence, if you will. For people of faith, for us, for Second Baptist, our core is God. It is, he is our strength, the one that we hold above all the rest. God is our highest and our sturdiest mountain, the one to whom we cling when our days and our months and our years are hard and when life just doesn't go the way we anticipate or expect it to. In the days to come, let us go up to the mountain so that God may teach us. Several years ago, while building sustainable gardens with a humanitarian team in South Africa, had the opportunity to go on a hike in the South African bush. Now, I love to hike, and I have been able to hike in some of the most beautiful places around the world, but none of them prepared me for the South African bush. So when I say Africa, you probably immediately thought, you know, lions and zebras and giraffes, oh my, if you will. But don't worry, none of those are in this story, fortunately for me. Our hike started early in the morning just as the sun was coming up. It was cold, the dead of winter. You see, in South Africa, I didn't know that it got cold, but it gets very cold in South Africa. Or at least for this Texas soul, it gets very, very cold. You Midwesterners are a bit more hardcore than I am, though. I'm still the person that every time I have to take my dog out to the bathroom on the Franklin house, I literally take 30 minutes to put on 12 layers of clothes just to open the door. And then I pray the whole time, Lord, please let it happen quickly. <laughs> so if you see me out there, I'm not dancing for joy, I'm dancing for warmth. <laughs> so you see, we began our journey. We gathered with our guide, and our guide gave us pretty strict instructions. Keep a good pace. We'll get there by noon. We'll get to the peak by noon. Stick with me. There's a possibility of animal sightings. <sighs> but if you stay close and we move quickly... We'll get to the peak to see the site. We'll have time to reflect and have tea and crumpets. Now, when you think of South Africa, you probably don't think of mountains. But they're there. They exist. They're beautiful in a unique and inspiring way. They're brown and dry and sometimes lightly layered with snow. We began ascending. Our path bobbed and weaved and very quickly... I found myself scanning the horizon, constantly looking. Because you see, I had been warned multiple times of animal attacks. So I was looking and I just knew that there was no way I was making it off of this mountain without being mauled by a lion. And I figured if that didn't happen, then I probably would be trampled by a water buffalo. And I just couldn't figure out who was gonna call my mom, but I just knew it was gonna happen. <laughs> 
So I looked intently. I scanned every so often, just making sure that I was where I was supposed to be and nothing was too close, all the while sticking incredibly close to the guide. But somewhere along the way, I found myself less concerned with what was possibly in the bush with me and more concerned about each and every step that I was taking. You see, none of the hikes that I've been on in my life prepared me for this trek. I found myself on edges, just barely sliding and shimmying along the mountainside. Just drops with eight to six inches to move my big, large feet along. All the while, with every sprig of grass that I could see, grabbing it, not because I thought that it would let me stop falling, but because Somewhere in the midst of it, I thought, this will just offer my brain and my body a wisp of stability. We climbed higher and higher, all the while anticipating the peak and the sight that we would see. Much like when you enter into the city of Jerusalem and Israel. You ascend higher and higher, all the while anticipating and looking forward to the sight, the beautiful city. And when the peak and the sight came into view, what a view. Because there, resting on the horizon, were hundreds of miles of the South African bush. And you may not think it's beautiful, but there is something quite awe-inspiring about that view. It was peaceful and still and overwhelmingly wondrous. And I wonder in this moment, as we read Isaiah's text, if the feeling I felt standing there looking out at the horizon is actually the image that Isaiah hopes and imagines for Judea and Jerusalem, the highest place, the literal mountain of Israel standing as a beacon of shalom for all to see, standing as a beacon of hope for the world. We sat in awe, consuming our tea and crumpets, forgetting for a moment the possibilities of lion attacks or actual just life worries, just taking in the silence and the stillness. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here, one of trusting the beauty the mountain holds, one of pausing and setting aside all of life's worries and struggles to breathe deep the mountain air, to rejoice that the body can feel aches and pains of the climb, to celebrate every view that you saw along the journey upward, knowing that only in climbing can you obtain the depth, the understanding, and the wisdom the experience offers of leaving tomorrow to tomorrow and trusting that today's mountain will prepare you and ready you for tomorrow's mountain and of being ever vigilant because perhaps what you might deem hardship is dripping with overwhelming moments of glee and joy and you might find 
that while you were so attuned to looking for lion attacks that you missed the real threat of the South African bush, which is that baboons do throw poop at you if they want your tea and crumpets. Or so that's what I found. In the days to come, God shall arbitrate for many people. Throughout centuries, history holds testimonies of war and arguments dividing humankind. Humanity seems to ever be at war. We debate everything. We debate politics. We debate lands. We debate money, all the while believing that we are right and the other is wrong and trusting, therefore, that God is going to set all things right, or better yet, set them to our specifications. Yet Isaiah is urging quite the opposite. Isaiah's vision tells of a God who is the decider of arguments, a God who sits in the tension of nations, a God who mediates even the most mundane spats of people. So hear then these words. In the days to come, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The land is suffering. People are starving. Waste is gathering. Yet they cling to their swords and their spears. They trust that the expensive weaponry they have will protect them. They focus on the tension, the opposition, all the while missing the true detriment that they themselves are suffering. They forge ahead, eager to find victory at the mountain's peak, but somewhere along the way, instead they find understanding. They're grasping for the single sprigs to offer them stability and hope as they climb. And what they find is that their swords and their spears can no longer meet their needs. What took great wealth and artisanship to create is now forged easily by the average blacksmith into tools not meant for fighting or dividing, but rather tools meant for feeding and gathering. Once a people intent on cultivating separation, now fashioned with the, the accessories of friendship and community, not those made at the expense of slaves or created or used by taking advantage of the poor, but now accessories given that foster just systems and fair living. You see, the peace I so often plead with God to bring, Isaiah doesn't believe falls from God alone. Isaiah envisions a world wherein her inhabitants embrace God's role as judge among the nations and embody their role of bringing about shalom, peace on earth. When I contemplate Isaiah's vision, I think of our Christmas store here at 2BC. Each year, Carrie and her team of volunteers and workers hustle around, getting everything just right and just ready, gathering presents and setting up our store, all to welcome the families who enter our building. Families that society often judges and says are unable to provide for their own. Families that society often likes to ignore 
and not see. But perhaps the shalom that we as creation are to be working to bring about involves our inclusion and care for those that society likes to avoid until the holiday season of giving comes. Perhaps that is what it means for you and for I to beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. In the days to come, Nations will not lift up swords, nor will they learn war anymore. When we have no weapons, the tone shifts. We no longer see ourselves as the immediate victor. Out of necessity, we channel our ability to rationalize and negotiate. We refrain from rash decisions because we are no longer protected. We recognize the desperate need to collaborate, negotiate, and listen, all the while learning and teaching people to dialogue well and live selflessly for the well-being of others. For there, where we once saw a world full of doom and despair, now we can see sprigs of hope sprouting forth, providing stability. Perhaps the gift of Isaiah's vision is its underlying tone of pleading. The call to action it is requiring of its readers, of you and me and Jerusalem and Judea. Isaiah proclaims in the days to come, there is hope of a world brimming with shalom. But that doesn't magically happen. Even now, in the days to come, you and I know this doesn't instantly exist. And we might even wonder sometimes, is it possible? The overwhelming nature of war and illness and loss and just life itself can sometimes cloud our view of hope and sometimes leave us with none. However, Isaiah's words are actually hopeful. And he seems to believe that a world of shalom and unity for all of creation is possible when we cling to the mountain, when we embrace the lessons of the climb, when we listen to God, the mediator, when we work to reshape our swords and our spears. And when we lift our hands to the work of restoring hope. So Second Baptist, in the days to come, may we restore hope by becoming less oblivious to the impact of our actions on others. In the days to come, let us restore hope by ceasing our weeping. How long, O oh God, how long? And instead plead, use me, O oh God, use me. In the days to come, may we restore hope by being a people who extend generosity without assumptions. In the days to come, let us restore hope by loosening our grip on self-preservation and protection so that we might provide hospitality and welcome to another. In the days to come, 
May we restore hope by being less concerned with the perfection of the Christmas season and more thoughtful as we work to build and bridge relationships with each other. And so, in the days to come, O people of God, restorers of hope, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.